This is Changeling the Podcast. Welcome to Changeling the Podcast. Come for the glamour, stay for the vibes. I'm your host, Josh, and with us is also your host, Puka. Say hello, Puka. Good evening. Or, you know, maybe you're listening to this. What are we doing this afternoon? We are going to be diving into that story to Changeling supplement, Immortal Eyes Court of All Kings, the third volume in the Immortal Eyes trilogy. Mm Mm-hmm. And not like I accidentally was doing earlier, reading the novel, which maybe we'll come to. All named the same names as the novels as the books. So both helpful and confusing. Do you know what else is helpful, helpful and confusing? I'm I'm just opening the book now and on the title page, there's no copyright date. So once again, we are adrift in time, or at least I am. Yeah. And there's things about this that makes it confusing. Uh, we can get it to when we get to like things like the near the end of the book. There's some stuff that makes it very yeah. confusing about time. Definitely. Uh, but it was definitely written by Nikki Ria. Yes. And additional material by Jackie Caseda and Stephen Heron. There we go. Uh, this book is very much about Ireland. You can say that in a little intro. The dedications about Ireland. Or Hibernia or Era or whatever else you feel like calling it. Because this book uses them all. Mm-hmm. I do also like, this is a, a book that really showcases the art of Rebecca Guay, who is one of the sort of, in my mind, quintessential changeling artists. I mean, right up there with like Tony de Terlizzi. And so it's nice to see her art on like the cover and the chapter openers and all of that. Yes. So. I, I like the art. So we have a introduction, which says it's, this is unlike other city books in the world of darkness, because it contains geographic and historical information about the areas covered which i could swear city books do that but okay but not always well yeah i won't yeah and i mean this one thing to keep in mind this we've said this before with other books about places there's a lot of information here you can look up online so but uh you know it's kind of neat to have it yeah Uh, yeah this is very much about the emerald isle oh there we go that's another name for ireland Yet again, in addition to the internet, the introduction itself specifically mentions, oh, look up some travel books and picture books and videotapes from your public library. It's like, oh, I miss you mid-90s. Yeah. But here it also sounds like, so because this is the last book in the Immortal Eyes trilogy, they give you kind of the overview of that chronicle as something for the players to be involved with directly or be involved with on the periphery or just use the book as a setting book only and leave the whole chronicle thing aside. And it just further kind of muddies the waters. I mean, I know I've commented when we've talked about the first two volumes, how it's a little bit unclear to me whether the players are supposed to be following like in the exact footsteps of the immortal eyes oath mates that are sort of the, the centerpiece of the story, or if they're just supposed to be occasionally bumping into them in the same setting or, you know, whatever. So this, this kind of directly says, like, get as involved with the Chronicle as you want. And I guess that's fine. But I'm going to think of it more as a setting book, because the Chronicle aspects in this one are 
comparatively thin. Yeah, this is definitely a, a setting book where it's like, ah, you can kind of see the Chronicle in there, but mm-hmm. a little bit. So yeah, I guess we'll start with the chapter one setting. This is like an introduction to Ireland. It's a lot of these, all the setting chapters, which they've done in the previous Immortalized books are all, you have written about sort of the mundane Ireland thing, one main setting part, and then there's these blue sidebars, some of them taking up a lot of page space about the numerical <laughs> aspect. Yep. And this was just sort of an overview of the whole setting. You know, it's, I mean, it's got stuff on festivals, I think. So many festivals, so many, so many festivals. Some of which I can say I've researched, I don't think are actually happening anymore. Uh, or if oh. they are, they're so minor and rare that they don't show up on the internet very easily. So, Yeah. Well, actually, that's one thing that hit me in this book in general is, I think part of it is Ireland's changed a lot since the 1990s. Very much so. I guess we can say overall the tone, because it comes through maybe most strongly in this introduction, or actually there's a couple of places, we'll get to them later on, but in the introduction, it definitely comes through. And there's a lot of reference to things like the troubles in the IRA and the sort of bleak future of Ireland within a couple of years of this book coming out was sort of the, the Celtic tiger economic miracle of Ireland becoming one of the most developed and richest countries in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the IRA ceasefire having held. So yeah, there's a big thing later about uh, like the Republic is, way behind economically from Northern Ireland, which is way behind from the UK. I'm like, that's not true anymore. That's yeah. Yeah. So, which is, I mean, which is good. It's nice to think that things have improved, Mm -hmm. but I guess in the world of darkness, one can, one can keep things as bleak as one desires. That's true. Um, Other, other interesting things about it from a changeling perspective. It talks a lot about, uh, there's a lot of, glamour banality paradox going on it's like tourism brings glamour and banality and destroys glamour and okay and and i would have liked more help with that it's like okay you present it does a lot of that actually in this book it presents these dichotomies and it's like okay that's that's interesting to explore but maybe a bit more how to use that in a game would be handy or what this means yeah yeah, we, we've never really gotten solid tourism rules for glamour and banality. And yeah. on the one hand, I'm fine with that. But on the other hand, it would be an important comment on the nature of glamour and banality. To yeah, it doesn't need specifically tourism rules, but it's alluding to a bunch of stuff about tourism. And it would be nice to put that yeah. in an easier framework. One of the things, too, is that Ireland, it's just one of the most overdetermined places on Earth. You know, it's it's like New York or... Paris, maybe just everyone has this kind of image of the place and what's involved in it that may have very little correspondence to reality. And the whole space is just soaked with people's expectations, Mm -hmm. essentially. And there's something, there's some kind of comment to be made about that in relation to glamour and banality. I'm just not sure what it is. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it also like it has, this is settings presented as there's more Kithane royalty than you could shake a stick at and other nobility and nobles calling themselves royalty but also more commoners than normal too it says so it's just and it's like everything it's just okay let's just cram in as much changeling as possible into this island which it was a big inspiration for the game but yeah as as many people have pointed out the sort of keltocentrism of changeling as a game 
is worth commenting on here because we're in one of the heartlands of Celtic culture. We're in the and, from the U.S. perspective. This is the heartland. You're talking about the over. To- yeah, and that is that is important. I mean, they they mention in the introduction there are more people claiming Irish ancestry in the United States than the population of Ireland. So, in terms of white colonial U.S. history, it looms large in the sort of folk memory and the lore that people brought over the ocean. I suppose because it had such a large population of people who have kept it alive for such an extended period of time, it has worked its way into kind of the, I guess you could say, modern American folkloric sensibility in a way that a lot of other European traditions haven't. I mean, Mm -hmm. English folklore also, but like a lot of the sort of British face stuff blends together anyway. So yeah, that's definitely true in Canada as well. Like yeah, like yeah. my fa- my dad's from Denmark. I have a Danish connection there, like Danish family and stuff. My mom's family's one of those from Ireland, but like through one line, it's maybe three generations back, and then w- way more generations before that. But it's still like growing up. All this, I don't even call it Irish. I call it Irish Canadian mm-hmm. stuff going sure. on. As I'm getting older, I'm having a funnier and funnier interaction with that. But. <sighs> Skipping slightly ahead in the introduction, when it talks about mood and atmosphere in relation to this topic, it has the sentence, Ireland is the natural home of changelings. And I think that if you changed the to a in that sentence and said Ireland is a natural home of changelings, that would go a long way towards honestly, like fixing a lot of the issues that I -hmm. see in the game from a sort of meta perspective, because like, yeah, of course you know, in any in any part of the world where there's, especially island, where there's a large number of people in one place for many, many generations just kind of bouncing off each other, yeah, you do get to the point where every tree, every rock, every hilltop has, like, a story associated with it. It is a very rich landscape, and the tradition of the Fae there is very strong, so it is a natural home, but not the only one. All these things aren't mm-hmm. unique to Ireland. Yep. Anyway, we should probably do a full episode at some point on on that topic because oh, it yeah. is important to unpack. And there's even special, like, there's stuff with the Celtic stuff, but even this book highlights Ireland over other Celtic <laughs> aspects yeah. of Changeling. It's, yeah. But, yeah. Well, we haven't gotten to Isle of the Mighty yet, but Isle of the yes. Mighty more than pulls its weight when it comes to Scotland and Wales. So Yeah. Listeners, stay tuned for the trilogy of episodes for Isle of the Mighty coming soon. Mm -hmm. I just, I wanted to note a couple things in here. Like when it talks about, so there's a sidebar on Chimerical Ireland, which kind of gives you the brief overview from a changeling perspective of the island. And there's actually um, an interesting thing here where they talk about the return of the Shi and the establishment of the four great kings and their kingdoms and the many petty kings. And I think this is actually the first book where we get a description of how the resurgence happened in anywhere outside of Concordia. And the important note here, I think, is that there was no like peace agreement like you had in Concordia. It's just kind of stalemate and everyone got tired of fighting and had an armistice, but there was no overall peace as King David put together or whatever. Mm Mm-hmm. So there is still a lot of tension. It also mentions Houses Baylor and Leonin. And given that it's unclear when this book came out in relation to Shadowcourt, it might be the first time they pop up. Certainly the first time I think we get statted characters from those houses. Yep. So. Yeah, it's like they're both 
were written. Se- I guess they, they may have well been written separately without referencing each other. That could have, yeah, with some notes spawning both. So in a sense, they're neither. Both came out before each other yeah. or after each other. And then there's also, I mean, a lot of the chapter is sort of focused on this tension between image and reality. So that overdetermination, the stereotypes versus how things actually are on the ground. And I do kind of like that as a thematic approach to Changeling as a whole. I think Changeling features that very frequently, very strongly, that relationship between story and everyday life. It's interesting to see a place where that's almost the default atmosphere, or in this context, that's what it's intended to be. So, Mm -hmm. and festivals, and I did like the little section about Irish traditional music because that's one of the forms of music that I grew up with and I'm very into. The one final note that I want to say about chapter one, and it's the thing that unfortunately has not changed much in the last 25 years, is the current state of the Irish language, which is struggling to survive. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I'm glad that they give attention to it and they they separate Irish Gaelic from Hiberno-English, which is an important thing to bear in mind. There's actually a re- something to bring. We'll come back to that in chapter four, which is kind mm. of interesting at that point. Suspense. Yes. Okay. And I think that brings us to chapter two, a mythical history of Ireland. AKA um, the densest history chapter that ever history. The yeah, history. And this one's so confusing. So like, other setting chapters in these books it's got this black and white text for like the mortal history and the black on blue text for the changeling history except it gets really confusing with the black on white text because it talks about the fearbug and the tuatha and cold iron and i'm like what i found it very confusing <laughs> well i i might be able I, I know where it comes from like from a I know it's 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 draw, I know what it's drawing on in terms of like folklore and mythology from an Irish perspective, but the way they blend it from a changeling perspective makes it very strange. Yeah. Like, what are you? Well, I suspect because so all right. So there's I'm going to mangle the pronunciation here. So apologies to any Irish listeners, but there's the text the Leorgual and Erin, which is the Book of Invasions, and that. Mm-hmm. The medieval text lays out the sort of mythography of Irish history and the the waves of invasions of people coming to the island, the fourth of which was the Firbolg, the fifth of which was the Tuahajadanan, and then the Milesians are like the modern, or not the modern Celts, the ancient Celts. Um, but so my understanding is that in the historiographical tradition, which is, I never get to use the word historiographical, I'm glad I got to use it just now, there have been attempts to pin that text to the archaeological evidence and say like, okay, we see these layers of culture that have built up through the millennia. Here's one cultural horizon. Here's the next. Here's the next. Maybe that corresponds to first the tribe of Kassar, then the tribe of Parthalon, then the tribe of, you know. So it, it has been that blurry line between history and myth and trying to make sense between the two. So yeah, I mean, I get why the chapter is presented like that. I'll allow that it can be somewhat confusing, but I, I still liked it. So, mm-hmm. you know, and they oh, do yeah. have, they do have some purely historical record things mixed in as well, which yes does help to have like a, I, th- I think it's the, the two different keeping up the two different types of sidebars, which really messed me up because it was still mm-hmm. having things that were definitely still changeling in the non changeling sidebars. And then you're mixing yeah. the, are, are we talking about like, 
history, history? Are we talking about the, you know, the, the invasions? Are we talking about changeling? Every sentence is like flipping around. <laughs> and it's the difficult situation where, because they've drawn so heavily on Irish myth for the game mechanics and for the meta plot of the game, they have to make clear. So it's like, okay, in the sidebar, when we talk about Fomorians, we're talking about these mysterious ancient entities that the ancestors of the Fae battled who are locked away somewhere in the dreaming, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And then in the other black on white sections, it's when they're talking about the Fomorians, they're talking about them in the Irish monks writing histories context where they were just seen as sort of the autochthonous inhabitants who fought off the invasions millennia ago. So like, yeah, there's, they're so close that if you're going to distinguish them at all, I guess having two different text background colors is the only way to do it. Yeah. Well, it also on the white, no, but on the thing is on like the white background, like if you go on page 27, some among the Tuatha de Dinan elders felt that their close proximity to humans was harmful to their dreamers. And that's not changeling text. That's the historical. There's a lot like that too. And Maybe that was just an error. <laughs> but it's all through this. It's yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. And it's not even get into denizens of the dreaming, how that fits into this, but we can get into that yeah. way later. I also like how there are sidebars within the sidebars. Yes. <laughs> like, honestly, this chapter could be its own book because it's just so full of stuff. Mm -hmm. And like, we have the treasures of the Tuatudana and we have the House Baylor write up, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And I do, as a sidebar to the sidebar within the sidebar here, I like that this is a nice reminder that treasures can be so much more interesting than just contains level three chicanery or whatever. And I wish that there was more of that in like C20, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, C20 went with, let's make it easy to make your own treasure instead of evocative treasure, but yeah. Yeah. They also mentioned the Leofal, which is the stone of the former high court of Tara that if you touch it and it screams, it means you're the high king. And I have touched it, but I'll I'll not say whether it screamed or not. Oh, it also going back to the what I was mentioning before on the previous chapter about uh, Irish. So when it's talking about where House Gwydion comes from at one point in this chapter, you have mm -hmm. Lu or Lu, whatever. Uh, yeah, it's saying he's House Baylor, but he's also the founder of House Gwydion. It says that it both of those in this chapter, and I'm like, I don't know if that's intentional, but I need to use that in a changeling game. <laughs> Yeah. The, the other difficulty you have here is, so Gwydion is a character in Welsh mythology who has parallels with Lu. Yeah. But there's also Llo in Welsh mythology, who's the direct cognate. So like trying to align Irish and Welsh mythology at the same time that you try to align the structure of houses in game with like the genealogy of the gods and demigods that inspired them, mm -hmm. it's going to get messy. Yeah. So, so what do you think about all the Christian fae in the history section? I guess I'm fine with it. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not... Celtic Christianity is kind of an interesting construction historically. Mm -hmm. And the idea of the old faith lurking under the surface of Christianity for centuries. I'm fine with it. I'm not running to play one, but I think mm -hmm. it, it adds an interesting dimension to the idea of who changelings are and the fact that they are humans, you know, for the first part of their mm -hmm. lives. 
And it also speaks to the endurance of the beliefs. I mean, I don't think they mentioned Bridget Cleary in here, but Bridget Cleary, who was murdered by her husband for being a fairy in 1893, I think. So it's not like this is ancient, ancient stuff. That tension between the religions has existed and has persisted for a very long time. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I don't, while I'm okay with the idea of Christian Fey, I don't know how I feel about the Christian versus pagan kind of dynamic they're trying to set up in certain points. Yeah. But it, I mean, it's interesting. And then Christian versus old Celtic versus Roman Catholic versus pagan and then Protestant versus yeah. anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. This is maybe the only moment in Changeling where we hear about religion quite so directly. Yep. And it makes sense because it's been such a topic well, for before the, Before this, I was like, well, I knew there was Liam who were Christian before the shattering, but that was it. Like, that's the only... No, I missed that. <laughs> yeah, that, I don't remember <laughs> what book that. that's in. That's in some other book. That's it, In some book, it claims that's why they were oath-broken. Oh, weird. Or it was tied to that. But you yeah. have to keep an eye out for that. But this is also like pre-shattering, pre-changeling yeah. Christian Fey too, which was interesting. Yeah. As interesting as it is, I very much prefer the rest of the ancient history that they give here because I find Celtic epics to be outstanding. Like mm -hmm. people fighting wars over cows. I love it. Yeah. It, it is a bit funny when you're putting it in like, okay, so this, the Fomorians and the Tuatha Dé Danann, like in Changeling have to be these like epically powerful gods and then they're fighting over cows. I just love that. It's fantastic. It also has interesting stuff like from a changeling perspective of uh it talks a lot about changelings and not just she heading back to arcadia from ireland like and basically going and not coming back way before the shattering i've always kind of had the impression that arcadia you know was much more accessible mm -hmm. yeah it was still a journey but it wasn't it wasn't difficult to get to for the pre-changeling fey the pre-shattering pre-changeling fey yeah Maybe as the Sundering wore on, it got harder and harder to get there, and the gates of, did eventually start closing. But, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it makes sense. It's just an interesting comment. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just an interesting comment. Yeah. Then it talks about where the shattering came from. This I'm less of a fan of. And we do get notes about Vikings after having basically no information about them in Kithbook Trolls. So. <laughs> yeah. Wait, does it tie them? To I didn't see. I was reading it. I didn't see anything about it actually tying them to Trolls either. Yeah, not not so much. I think there's like a brief mention, but I mean, there's a brief mention of trolls. They talk extensively about the Vikings' impact on Ireland. Mm -hmm. So, also the picture on page thirty-four is terrifying. Speaking of Christian fey knights, mm. yes, I don't know how to parse that picture, but it really unsettles me. <laughs> well, it's also another. Naked female she with a scrunched up face expression. That's very common in Changeling. But yeah, that's that's Stu's art. Stuart Beale. Anyway. Yeah. It gets yeah, it also gets into yeah, the it goes through the whole history of Ireland. It also gets into the shattering being I don't think it really makes sense from a changeling perspective of saying it's because the humans blame the fae for the black plague therefore that caused them to banality to increase in the shandering happened yeah and, i'm also not into that yeah in general i don't really think the black plague makes sense as causing the shattering but 
Well, and similar to the the slight evidence of there having been many resurgences prior to the resurgence, I think many shatterings prior to the shattering would also make sense. Mm-hmm. So any kind of existential upheaval that revises both mortal and fey worldviews about society and the world and how they work and everything and how they're perceived paradigm shifts in mm-hmm. who the fey are from a human perspective yeah. and vice versa because you have all of these sort of historical crises where you could say there's been a massive change in how people relate to their dreams and their imagination mm-hmm. their imaginings so i would say the black plague could be a large shattering but ireland and everywhere else certainly had several little ones leading up to it yeah I just don't think it quite makes sense given what actually happened during the Black Death. Like it was, true. it was a big dark glamour thing. Well, any event like that is going to be such a massive mix with massive amounts of both. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, but anyway, after all that, after Silver's Gate, the last gate to Arcadia, which is in Ireland, closed, mm-hmm. which we'll come back later as a topic. Frankly, after that, I think it's a pretty boring chapter. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I just kind of. It's like, yeah, I don't care about the Tudors coming to Ireland. I don't care about the English Civil War, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's like, uh, what is the changeling response to Norman knights being brought in by the English? I do like, though, you could conceivably have a situation if I if I have all of the sort of lines they've drawn correct. You have the possibility of Anglican knockers, Presbyterian boggins, pagan puka and slua, Catholic redcaps and trolls, a fractured houskaya, and Catholic and pagan chloricon all kind of colliding. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a setting. Yes. Oh, yeah, I agree with that. That was it's sort of after that point where it's like getting all the way up in the details, I guess. And then it sort of goes up into Irish independence and partition and all that stuff. Um, well, and the famine... The famine as yeah, well. Yeah, the famine which, first. Yep. And that that to me would be a big shattering for Ireland. That would be a, oh, yeah. a source of banality. <laughs> yeah, that makes Probably sense. Probably larger than the Black Plague. Well, yeah. They had very different effects on society, I think. This is part of my thing there. But yeah, the, the, the famine was, yeah, that was banality. <laughs> yeah. And especially because it was it was as much a product of the overlordship of England as it was... A natural occurrence. I'd say it's more of a product of the economic system that Irish farmers were forced oh, into. Yeah, yeah, sure, perhaps more. Because <laughs> they couldn't... As much or more. They couldn't grow other food crops because of... Yeah. Yeah. And I wish, honestly, that they had kind of given more detail about that because it is such a formative... Not only a formative event for Ireland, but a formative event for Irish emigration. Oh, yeah. So... You know, to mention, oh, there are more Irish Americans by far than there are Irish in Ireland. That might be the major cause. Yeah, I'd say it's the biggest one for, yeah, at least to the to the Americas. Yeah, then civil war and independence and all that, and then mm-hmm. so much about the IRA, so so much and the yeah. troubles. I'm just like, oh well, this is not as useful now. It's almost a mini supplement within this chapter that could be its own supplement. And I mean, this was not the only media thing that was talking about the IRA all the time when it brought up. Oh, for sure. Ireland, but. I I will say if someone were inclined to do a chronicle set against the backdrop of the troubles, you have more than enough information here on its own without even like opening Wikipedia. Yes. 
That's so. true. I mean, to the point that we have like a a description of every single political and parapolitical group and paramilitary group involved over a two-page sidebar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very thorough. I don't know how useful all of it is, but it's very thorough. It'd be useful for running, more useful running a game in the 90s in Ireland than today, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is fair, because it was written in the 90s. And then, like, honestly, only only a, a bare mention of The Return. It's called Not The Resurgence, so. Mm-hmm. So you have, like, here's a couple paragraphs about when the she came back and they were in the middle of all of this fighting. And so, so they just sort of did it, like hit it. The sh- Accordance War in Ireland was just looked like it was that. <laughs> yeah. It does mention it was shockingly violent, more shockingly violent than in America, which I don't know. That feels like an important note that should be more yeah. dealt with. I've read the stuff. They already had stuff about the Accordance War before here. It was pretty shockingly violent. So... <laughs> Yeah, no, exa- well, and especially when you get to, like, Fool's Luck Way of the Commoner, where they go into yeah. in depth into some of the horror stories. But I guess this was just kind of a... Yeah. And then we have a sidebar about, like, the collapse of Ireland's economy, which, again... <laughs> yeah. That's the history chapter. I do like how there's a Selkie chronicler who's kind of... Again, there's another sidebar thing with black on black text on green... And that's the in-character post-it notes being left by the compiler of this history, or presumably mm-hmm. writer of this history. Yeah, maybe that if this whole thing's written by her, that earlier bit of confusing stuff makes a lot more sense. It's in game text. Yeah, maybe maybe so. Uh, should we move on to the geography? Yes, nearly as dense as the history chapter. Yeah, this is a lot of places and a lot of places <laughs> i think that you could almost do a mathematical formula of some kind where you have like the population density of a place over time multiplied by the length of time that people have been there or you know within a certain span of time and just the the density of narratives that you would get from that you know mm-hmm. it's the same kind of thing like I don't know, maybe this is just from my own my own sort of encounters with studying myth and everything. When I think of like certain mythologies that just seem so astonishingly deep and tied to their landscapes. But yeah, it, it certainly seems like everything in Ireland has a story behind it. Every place mm-hmm. in Ireland has a story. Yeah, I wonder how much that's Europe in general. but Yeah, I, arguably every place everywhere has a story yeah. attached to it. It's just for whatever reason certain bodies of stories get foregrounded much more in certain cultures than in others. Yeah. Well, if you have a culture that's been there for thousands of years, you're going to right, right, exactly. more of those stories. So we have a note that Ireland was once a plentiful cauldron of glamour, but it still holds a wealth of fairy magic, freeholds, glades, thorps, and fairy rings. So there are enchanted sites scattered around the island. What's a thorp again? Thorp is the fairy village, which I do okay. want to talk about later. Okay. How does that work? I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so Ireland has traditionally been divided into four provinces, and the book takes us through those one by one. So we start with Connacht, which is in the western portion. 
Connacht has most of the Gaeltacht. The Gaeltacht, incidentally, is the portions of Ireland where Irish is kind of um, officially supported as the local language. So you'll see signage in Irish. You'll hear you'll actually hear it spoken sometimes in the streets and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Which, when I traveled there, I was like, oh my god. Students go there for summer schools to practice Irish, et cetera, et cetera. It's an ever diminishing portion of the territory, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, but it also has things like clotter rings, which are probably one of the most famous exports at this point. Lots of stuff to do with W.B. Yeats, because he's sort of the poet par excellence of, well, maybe of the country, but certainly of the region. I especially liked, they talk about this pub called The Broken Harp in Slago, which is a gathering place for unseelie kithane. And they just kind of like, you know, they have kithane musicians who do traditional ballads and body paintings and all this other stuff. And it just sounds like a fun location to include in a game. Anyway. Yeah, it's always going back to the unseelie or evil, but also have really good parties. Thing of yeah, tradition. precisely. We have a sidebar about the Banshee. Who, who does appear in the novels and, um, you know, got more of a write-up in Nobles the Shining Host. There's the Aran Islands off the coast and Achill Island, which is where Silver's Gate is. It does have kind of a travel guide feel, for sure. I would also say, though, that it's kind of when people have an image of rural Ireland, this is what they're thinking of. They're thinking of Connacht mm -hmm. because it has those windswept, lush hillsides with like rain clouds overhead and the sound of pipes drifting through the air etc and a very heavy emphasis on the banality of tourism kind of winds through this chapter so that's connacht oh there's also connemara national park which is apparently a puka paradise oh i like the dun agus oh i probably said that totally wrong dun agus yeah that seemed kind of cool with uh it's a big sort of tower fortressy thing taken over by a group of unseelie kithane there's a hidden treasure beneath it that they can't figure out how to get there yeah it's definitely a good source for like story options mm -hmm. and i would even say a lot of these transpose very well to other locations so you could have donangas or something like it in another context and it would still work fine mm -hmm. yeah it's very true yeah you could use a lot of this in concordia or anywhere so mm -hmm. so then we move on to leinster which is the eastern province. Also, the provinces double as the kingdoms of the Kithane, which is very convenient. Mm -hmm. So, the eastern kingdom. Yeah, this is a situation where it makes a bit more sense that the Kithane borders and the mortal borders really match up. Yeah. Well, it's traditional, so it's, you know. Mm -hmm. And there is still, there's also history kind of woven into the geography chapter as well at certain points. Most notably in this one, because Leinster contains Dublin. So, although it doesn't really... There's not nearly as much information about Dublin as I expected. Yeah. Like, it's a few paragraphs, which is surprising. Ah, like, oh, there's banality. It's Dublin. <laughs> there's more about the Aran Islands than about Dublin. So, it's interesting. It does talk extensively about the Book of Kells, which I would say is certainly a source of glamour. Well, despite its long exposure to the public view, the Book of Kells still radiates the glamour of its inspired anonymous creators. I'm like... I don't know. That implies, like, if you go see the Mona Lisa or something, there's no glamour anymore. But Well, I, I have seen both, so I can comment on this. Yeah. <laughs> the Book of Kells is astonishing. The Mona Lisa is underwhelming and kind of looks dirty, 
and you have to like fight through 50 people to get close to it to take a picture of a tiny little painting that's hanging six feet away behind glass. Okay, that's true. So there's yeah. that. Maybe it is the the same tourism banality glamour yeah. issue. But anyway, the Leinster section actually is very short. I mean, it's out of all of them, it's the shortest. And I suspect it's because Dublin and its surroundings are so tied with like the Anglo-Norman and then Tudor and then later British rulership of Ireland. So it's like, oh, that overshadows any mythic history or any fae history that might have occurred here, which I don't think is necessarily true. But I guess they wanted to focus on where the traditional Irish fairy lore stuff is kind of foregrounded and it's the only thread that they have to follow or something. I don't know. They do mention Newgrange and the Hill of Tara, both of which are also very impressive. Anyway, so then we move on to Munster in the south. We have Cork and Blarney Castle. The Blarney Stone, I feel like, must be a treasure of some kind. Mm. Although that one also, I'm wondering if it got all the glamour stripped from now, because that's another... Where was it? I haven't been to Ireland. It says the magical properties attached to it, its ability to confer eloquence on anyone who kisses the stone, stem from the fact that it once served as a potent repository for glamour before the sundering, long before its installment mm. in the castle wall. It was perhaps one of the largest examples of dross known to Fay. So maybe a former treasure? I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. a, a tiny remnant left? Something. I do kind of like that, though, that, you know, it's... I mean, they've kind of shifted the definitions of dross and treasure in C20, but I like the notion of something which is more significant than dross and that it's not just a source of glamour, but that mm -hmm. it has, it's not quite a treasure because it's not like, here's this object with a power that I'm going to use. It's more like if you draw glamour from this specific source, it comes with a little bonus. And I like that. Bit of resonance, if you will, to make something like that, yeah. yeah. But there's, I mean, there's a lot of that around the world. There's a fountain mm -hmm. in Barcelona that I always drink from called the Font de les Canaletes because it's if you drink from it, it means you'll return to Barcelona. Mm. That to me is the same kind of thing. It's this little source of glamour with a flavor in it. Anyway, we have information about Finn McCool, one of the central figures of Irish myth, and the Puck Fair. Out in Kilorglin, there's the Skelligs and Dingle Peninsula and the Ring of Kerry, which is very beautiful. Again, very touristic at this point, but still very beautiful. And then the Castle of the Merfolk, which is a very short sidebar, and I wish we had more about it. Yes. Well, it's like, is this the first Merfolk mentioned in Changeling? Uh, I feel like they've been mentioned briefly elsewhere, particularly in connection with the Immortalized Trilogy, mm -hmm. but... Yeah, this is certainly the first time they're kind of like assigned to a specific place with the story. So we have the Cliffs of Moor, which is maybe one of the most iconic Irish landscapes you see it in all of the commercials. And then there's an extensive section on Limerick. I've been to Limerick. I didn't find it particularly glamorous, but okay. And the Waterford Crystal Factory uh, is a neat thing. And then we have Ulster which also has some Gael talked, but doesn't really get mentioned here. Uh, no mention of Enya at all, I don't think. Enya's mm. from, from Donegal. But there's also a lot of significant sites for the meta plot, 
So you have the Forest of the Hidden King, which is the residence of Milshore, the Hidden One. You have Tory Island, which is sort of the traditional home of the Fomorians. And I think, I don't know that they mention it here, but um, I believe in the myths there's like a glass tower on Tory Island, and that's where Baylor lived. Uh, they talk so. about Baylor's fort here, yeah. I just kept going, it's like, that's where the Tories live? Uh. <laughs> they I mean, some of, them, some of them are pretty Fomorian. Yep. It does also mention that this is the freehold of uh, Dornara, field commander of the Army of the Shadow Court. I don't really recall the Shadow Court book mentioning, like, a standing army, but if there is one, I don't know, I guess just ranks of Thalian land up like Orokai. Maybe they have one in Ireland. Yeah. And then we have Glenly, the Fairy Thorpe. So the Fairy Thorpe does feature in the novel. So I won't get into it in case we do talk about the novel later. But just a Fairy Thorpe, where everyone is a changeling or canane or presumably long term enchanted. It seems like it would be very difficult to maintain one of those and also a very easy way for people to start falling into Bedlam. But I guess it's a neat setting. Yep. Yeah, well, the whole. Bedlam rules. <laughs> Getting into that, but wait, I'm sorry. What what rules are you referring to? Sorry, Bedlam warning signs chart. <laughs> They're more like guidelines. Yeah. Say. Though I think if even under the guidelines, if you just occasionally leave the town to go buy groceries or something, you're fine. Yeah, probably. Anyway, maybe something worth uh, worth looking into. Hmm taking notes for future patron content. Um, there's a lot about Belfast, which I found it a little bit surprising, but I'm here for it. I've never been there, and I would like to go there. Mm-hmm. There's also, in Belfast, they mentioned the Salmon of Wisdom earlier in a section in connection with Finn McCool, but in Belfast, they have this sculpture called the Salmon... Uh, actually, I think it's called the Salmon of Knowledge, and it's covered in all of these tiles that have reproductions of things like old newspapers from Belfast, children's drawings, old manuscripts, and it's like a visual history of the city on this symbolic fish, which I think is really cool. That's some kind of chimerical thing waiting to awaken, perhaps a crofted gloam of some kind. And lots of other nifty sites. Giant's Causeway is pretty famous. Yeah. A lot of this is also featured in the novel. It makes me think about how the novel's action primarily takes place in Ulster, I think, with like bits of it in Connacht. But they don't they don't go to Dublin in the novel. They visit all of these sites one by one. Yeah. Well, it makes sense to have it in the book, then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then I do really like... So the end of the chapter, there's another naked fey lady with a scrunchy face. But aside from that we have a sidebar that gives a guide to Hibernia's archaeological structures. And it sort of distinguishes cairns from cranogs, from dolmens, from portal tombs, from ring forts, and kind of gives you the specifics of each. I actually find that really helpful. What did you think of the geography section overall? Yeah, I like it. I had trouble keeping it in my head as I was going through it. But yeah, I think it's, it's so dense. Yeah, and a little bit tourist guidey. But... Yeah, but it's it's definitely tourist guidey for a changeling, so that works. Yeah, that's the end of book one, the Emerald Isle, which is mm-hmm. 
the setting stuff. And then we we have book two, The Fair Folk, chapter four, Nobles. Big stacks of characters coming your way. So yeah, this talks about uh, the four kingdoms who are divided up among the the four Seely houses that aren't Liam. And I, I love in principle, and then in game would play a commoner who was really aggravated by this probably but the four kings of the four kingdoms when they returned they essentially drew lots for which kingdom they would get and to me yep. that that perfectly encapsulates the out of touchness of the sheep so and and then it has that there's a whole bunch of nobles who do not have who are not kings they don't have the appropriate title backer for it but everybody calls they, they make everybody call them kings they call these yeah, lesser the kings. petty kings yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think somebody also might have asked on the Discord, or maybe it was on another Discord somewhere, whether the four kings of Hibernia recognized David as their overlord. And I think, if I've read kind of the write-up correctly here, they recognize he has a higher title, but they're like, you're not our high king. Our high king has not yet returned. No, there, there is actually... Where was it? Did I write it down? There's somewhere in here where they explicitly don't think he's a high king. Because he does not, he didn't do something about the proper rule for. He hasn't touched the stone of Tara, I think, yeah. is the thing. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So he's not the high king until he does that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the, the note about Liam and Skaha not being worthy to be kings. <laughs> oh, okay. Let me get into various characters, uh, starting with, uh, you can say Fiechra. his name, please. Yeah. I don't, I'm not sure if it's, I'm not sure if it's Fiechra or Fiachra. But Fergus O'Reilly yeah. in his mortal seeming. Yeah, yeah he, he's a neat character. Former yes. boxer who got beat up so bad he was in a coma and then taken over by the she, by a she, <laughs> to wake him up, basically, which I thought was kind of neat. There's a confusing thing about depth perception, meaning you can't drive. And I'm like, I know a lot of people without depth perception and they <laughs> drive, so what? <laughs> but... <laughs> Well, I think it's because he's he's like a race car fanatic or whatever. So I guess it matters to him. Okay. But it says he just doesn't like drive at all. Yeah. I guess he likes watching them. Yeah. Well, he wishes he could drive if he didn't. Have to. I think it's just confusing about death perception. But He patronizes car rallies and narrow gauge trains, which, okay. He adores spending time aboard anything that moves fast. Fast cars, fast trains, even fast horses are his great loves in life. I guess he just can't drive any of them hmm. he does have animal ken horses three so there you go i guess he can ride a horse as long as the horse has good depth perception mm-hmm. and he's also one of the rare examples of a she with appearance three well he deliberately picked somebody unattractive it's true and then we have his heir princess bethany she is uninteresting to me yep well there's a lot of characters i don't know if we should get into Oh, oh! There, but there is an interesting little tidbit. Okay, so she's got a clericon poet, Bevan, right? And it says he's a, it's hard to be in the west of Ireland if you don't speak Irish. And you were talking earlier about Irish <laughs> language dying. I'm like, even in the 90s, it yeah. hasn't, like there was nowhere where you would have trouble getting by without with only English in Ireland. Well, I think, all right. But what it says is, he is having a hard time of it in the West since he speaks not one word of Irish. So uh, I think that's different. 
I think. Oh, they're like, what's with you? Why can't you just say a few words? Yeah. Yeah. So there's what's called the couple focal, which is like literally a couple of words. And that's mm-hmm. as long as you have like a little bit, you know, that's mm-hmm. that shows a certain engagement with the community. Yep. That's my assumption of what they mean here. Okay, that makes more sense. Not like, oh, he can't figure out how to, he can't order groceries because yeah. no one speaks English. That's... <laughs> There's actually, maybe I'll put this in the show notes. There's a beautiful video on YouTube, an interview. I think it's in like the late 60s, early 70s, maybe. But they interview a traditional storyteller who's one of the last monolingual speakers of Irish. Like he has no mm. English. And they need to have an interpreter to kind of interview him. And they talk about, he's using vocabulary that has completely disappeared from the Irish language. There's these narrative and poetic structures that are very particular to the form of storytelling he's doing. Really, really cool stuff. That's cool. Yeah. Then in Leinster, we have King Bran from House Gwydion, who's the most she that ever she to she. It's just like quintessential she. Yeah. Uh... And his archivist, Sir Ulrin. I wish they gave more information about some of the treasures. So like each of the kings, it's like their treasures include the kingly treasures and the sword of the Fianna, the ruby ring of Tara. And some of them get specific information about their powers, mm-hmm. but the sort of default kingly treasures or ducal treasures or whatever, it's just kind of like, yeah, they have them. But do they do anything? Yeah, that, that would be nice. Maybe not in this book, but in some book, that would be nice to have that. Yeah. I do like how Fyrha also has a treasured computer infused mm-hmm. with glass. They use this for AutoCAD, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Chimerical assisted drawing. Yep. <laughs> then the Munster Court. This one is my favorite, even though it kind of plays into the sort of like sassy evil lesbian stereotypes. But we have Queen Nola, who's a commoner hating sorceress. And even though she's like really stuck up and snobbish, I think she's a great character. I have to wonder if there was like a subtle influence by the TV series, the monsters on this. Just go, let's make them into the dark monsters from the different monster. I'd be disappointed if that were the case. I'll admit it's possible. It's certainly possible. But, um, and then her lover, Lenore, who I believe is, I believe she's the first Leon who we actually have stats for where we actually have mm-hmm. character information for. Yeah. So that's cool. And she's the Ice Queen in comparison with Nula's Dark Sorceress kind of thing. And then Ulster has this whole meta plot in and of itself, which I had difficulty following all of the ins and outs in it. But it's essentially the king, King Finn, went unseely because of the troubles and tried to essentially poison the glamour of all of his vassals so they would become unseely. And the Duke of Belfast was the only one who avoided it. So King Finn pushed him out to put in Duke Lorenzo, whose house Baylor secretly. But Duke Lorenzo was working for Doranara of the Shadow Court and being watched by the troll Lord Galway, who's still secretly working for the original Duke Kester. It's very complicated. It's like Game of Thrones. And I actually mm-hmm. find that really interesting. And yeah. Yeah, if you're going to do something with she, that's that's a good thing to do with them. Yeah, I mean, it's it's complex, and it's a story within a story within a story, and yeah. And I also like how Duke Lorenzo has a chimerical companion who's a smoke dragon, who's incredibly powerful as well as a chimera. Mm-hmm. So lastly, we have the Court of the Hidden King, 
And the Hidden King is the first, maybe the only statted up lost one. And probably the only Seely Elil. He's also not quite a lost one, is the way it's described. So he he never underwent mm-hmm. the Changeling way, and he's remained not crazy by occasionally engaging with the knights. Yeah, he's not quite lost, that's what it means, yeah. He's just sort of yeah. true fae. He's a misplaced one. Yeah. But I mean, Strength 6, Charisma 7, Appearance 8, Intelligence 7, Glamour 20, Chicanery 5, Dreamcraft 5, Primal 5, Kronos 4, mm-hmm. Suitsay 5. He's very powerful. And, he's got uh, all the realms. He's got all the... Well, he doesn't have prop. Yeah, that's true, which is odd, but maybe they just forgot to write it. Oh, and he's treasure. He's title six. He is a king, right? Yeah. The hidden king. Anyway, I don't want to spoil him too much because, again, he shows up in the novel. Mm-hmm. And then it's interesting that there's an entirely separate section for the unseelie houses of Hibernia. So it keeps referring the reader to the Shadow Court for more information, but it does give... A couple characters. Okay, so this did come out after the Shadow Court. I don't know. I think it actually came out before, but then, like, I don't know. <laughs> Regardless, it's helpful to have both books because this one refers to the Shadow Court frequently. We have the Alo twins, one of whom is confusingly named Dougal, Dougal the Alo, <laughs> and then uh, Dorinara, the war leader of the Shadow Court, and then Black Tongue Dooley, who's a really sadistic and cruel. Baylor, not Hitman, Torturer for Hire, I guess. And then we have a sidebar about Rhapsody, which doesn't really give mechanics for it, but just kind of describes it in the context of House Leonum. Jono Dreams as the example character. Yeah, Shadow Court did have Rhapsody, right? Yeah, and then it gave the whole system for it as well. Mm-hmm. I guess it it's, it almost seems like it's written for... I think this was written with the idea it would come out after Shadow Court, but the assumption maybe you didn't read Shadow Court? Something like that. Or that you hadn't read it yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, they might not have known when it would actually get published in relation to each other. And that's that's the she. That's the nobles of Hibernia. Mm-hmm. Unlike most of the noble chapters we've seen, I didn't really have a favorite treasure that pops out from all of these. Possibly Duke Kestri, the disgraced Duke of Belfast, has a sword that calls up lion allies or something. Hmm. I think that's it's Kestri. Cool. So that takes us from the nobles to the commoners. And it's disappointing. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, it says that there's more commoners than you typically find in other places, combined with more nobles than you definitely think of combined in other places. It's just more changelings in general. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we just get two random motleys that have, like, no connection to anything we've seen so far. Yeah. uh, I remember one motley, the Scallywags. Yeah, I guess that's true. It's it's one motley and then the independents who are apparently not part of a motley. Yep. So, and yeah. And the motley overall, I find interesting because they're like a, a traveling circus and Commedia dell'arte troupe mm-hmm. with interesting dynamics between them. There is some uncomfortable aspects to the character of Evangeline, who's like the issue temptress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... But like as a concept, I like that idea for Motley, even if it's not with these specific characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've always wanted to do. Community Arte needs more role in role playing games in general. I think changeling is. Yeah. Cool. The independence we have Shanachi, which means like 
it's the Irish word for a master storyteller, and that's an issue, which feels a little bit too on the nose to me, but okay. Yeah, for um, an issue, he's really boring. Yeah. We have a puka ragamuffin, I guess you'd say, and I think she might be, or I guess these last two are like the only childlings in the book. There's also a red cap troublemaker childling. Mm-hmm. Go figure. I think there was a she childling somewhere too earlier, but maybe the princess or something. But yeah, and that's it. Like that's all the commoners we get. Mm-hmm. It's like hardly anything. <laughs> like I know the other book because I read some of it had other commoners in it. They could have like statted some of them. Yeah, but... I mean it's it's eight pages, mm-hmm. not even eight pages because one of those is like art. And then even shorter, I believe, is the Galleon and Prodigal chapter that comes after it. Although this does have one of my favorite chapter opening artworks ever with the merfolk and the ruins of mm-hmm. uh, Silver's Gate. Starts out uh, with a clericon talking about how he's a Galleon. And I'm like, that ah, just didn't work in this book. It even said they're basically just more commoners in Ireland. I'm like, then why are you calling them Galleon? But okay. <laughs> And it goes back to that question of whether Galane versus Kithane is more of a regional political distinction than anything else. Yeah. Maybe enforced by the dreaming for the sake of the Fey realm, but something that shifts from place to place. Although in Ireland, they should still be Fey one then. Right, right. That's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. But the question is like, and I know this has come up, I think on the Discord, but also elsewhere. Are they Fey one if you are from North America and you travel to Ireland and you've never met a Corican? Uh... Yes. Is it determined by where you are or who you are? Hmm. I'm inclined to go with where you are, but or mm, maybe not where you are. I'm inclined to go with who, who actually. <laughs> so. I'm inclined to go with who you are, where you are. What is the context for who you are in this location? Yeah, that's probably something along those lines. Yeah. And and the the clericon, incidentally, Liam is a major character in the novel, so mm-hmm. his whistle seemed a bit. He's got a treasure whistle that seems a, it you can uh, restore three points of glamour to a fading changeling for every point of glamour Leon invests with it. You can store up to three points. Useful it, for saving changelings from becoming undone. Yes. Also can be used as a focus for creating particularly imaginative shimmer chimera. We have Marala the Selkie Queen. Mm-hmm. She's one of my favorites. She's the queen of the Selkies. Right. I like that she has linguistics and the languages she speaks are Irish Gaelic and seal speech. Nice. Good for her. And then we have some prodigals and none of them are interesting. This, this vampire description. Okay. Which one? So he's a Tremere who's never been oh, informed, yeah. who's not, that he's like illegal because he's never been announced as created. He's a result of an experiment created an embraced unawakened mage. Terry Robinson, if you're listening to, please explain what an un- embraced, unawakened mage is. And now he's living with red cap childlings in Limerick. Yeah, it's that last part that I find a bit odd. What? Um, oh, he's only li- interacted with the group's leader. He taught to read and write. Yeah. So I'm just. This character is. It feels like you pumped into like GPT three or one of those text generation. And it just spewed out. It reminds me of that old Batman the Animated Series episode, I've Got Batman in My Basement. Mm. Something like that. Where it's like, kids with a vampire. I don't think you can stuff this much into a character and just write a paragraph. 
like this many different aspects. Yeah. It's like maybe this could be good if fleshed out, but actually one thing I do like is the Malkavians of Belfast thing. So it says following a Sabbat raid into the city in 1993, most of the kindred of Belfast were either killed or left in Torpor. This is leaving aside the fact that Belfast is a city of about 300,000, which I think by modern kindred estimates should only support three vampires. Oh, let's not get into that thing. Let's Let's not get into that. Regardless, it says the great majority of those left seem to be Malkavians named Malcolm. And I do kind of like the idea that all the vampires are Malkavians who go by Malcolm. Mm -hmm. Just, all right, why not? And then there's some Garou, and I really don't care about any of them. Yeah. Nor the mages. This might be the shortest write-up, actually, of any, like, NPC. So we have Derek Hanrahan. Derek is one of the Fianna. As an airline pilot for Aer Lingus, he is of enormous use to the IRA, for whom he manages to smuggle in guns from the United States. That's his write-up. Yep. That is the entirety. Okay. And a few wraiths, similarly thinly described. This is definitely... Overall, this book feels like it was written from start to finish because it starts with so much energy and so much detail and so much richness and just chapter by chapter, it gets thinner and thinner and thinner until you've got like these really phoned in write-ups that probably didn't even need to be included. It's just lip service and saying, oh yeah, by the way, mages exist as well in Ireland. The end. Any other thoughts on chapter six? Uh, No. I think it's. I think we covered that up. The nobles have more pages and statted characters than the other two chapters combined. Well, it's like the mage. I guess yeah. Okay, the mages, like one paragraph on all mages, and I'm like, I feel like Ireland should have more mages in it. Description described, something about Irish magic, maybe. And then the wraiths. I'm like, you know, you think Ireland, you do think ghost stories, right? So maybe. Yeah, I mean, a bit more there too would have been good. Less vampires, more mages and wraiths, at least. Werewolves, the whole. There's like, yes, the Fianna exist. Yep. Okay. Hmm. Well, regardless. Frankly, I'm not reading Changeling books to find out more about werewolves, so. No. Although, if any werewolves who are going to interact with Changelings, that's, that is. Yeah. That's where they would do it. Yeah. So then we get chapter seven. What did you think about chapter seven? It, uh, I'm going to ask you more about chapter seven because <laughs> I tried to read it. It exists. It exists. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of it's, it's seen. It's got chapter seven scenes. It's, it's supposed to be two scenarios or something. Um, yeah. and I'm not a big fan of those in general, but, and, and they're sort of free floating. They're not connected to, the immortalized chronicle very directly except like the first one has liam as a central character and the second one has lorenzo as a character but lorenzo is mm-hmm. not even part of the chronicle he's mentioned more in the setting part so like anyway yeah i i found them very unnecessary i guess they felt more like the sample stories at the end of the core book you know like a very throwaway if this is your first time playing changeling try this this story that will last you for an hour of game time. But that's kind of in stark contrast to what we had in the first two books for the trilogy, for the Immortalized, where it gave you like extensive scene by scene, this is how it connects to the grander narrative, et cetera, et cetera. So 
I like that the headers are named after traditional tunes. And I like the chimera Morag the Raven, who's a giant raven. That's about it. Mm-hmm. We can skip past that. If you... I mean, some of the art's nice. Yeah. There's there's just really not much to say about it. It's like, yeah, here's... I'm, I'm a little bit confused by those pixie things on page 135. Is uh... a she holding up a sword, and then there's like new... Looks like smaller fairy ladies with wings flying, but maybe they're as far oh, away. Oh, they're, they're nevers. They are nevers, but they're pretty big for nevers then. Yeah, maybe they're close up. Maybe, yeah. So that's, yeah, in the second story, which is just called Treasure Hunt, and it's a very generic treasure hunt, sort of realm by realm, it gives you the dukes and duchesses of Ulster and sort of a bit about their personalities the treasures that they received from King Finn and the sort of unsealy poisoning that they're suffering through. And I do kind of like that because that has more of the makings of a quest. Each of these could be its own little story where it's like, okay, you have to go to this court, get this treasure away from this lord so that they turn back to the light side, you know? And it gives you actual details about the treasures that they have, some of which are quite interesting. So it's a little bit of a skeleton of a story, so it doesn't really it doesn't really serve new storytellers that well. But if you are, I guess, an experienced storyteller looking for like an eight-part treasure by treasure quest, it works pretty well. So and it ties into that complex story within a story within a story for Ulster. I mean it's kind of Tolkien-esque now that I'm thinking about it. You know, like Finn created these magic treasures that corrupted the people he gave them to has a very Nazgul kind of element to it. <laughs> anyway, that's that's the treasure hunt. There's one treasure that I liked in here called the Ebon Nightingale, which is a clockwork bird made of gold and ebony that sings so beautifully that all who hear it lose a point of banality. The song lifts the heart and erases cares. It's usable twice a month, but then you can get addicted to it. So I think that's like an interesting... MacGuffin to have in a chronicle. Yeah. So, anyway, it's a weird space between story hook and detailed chronicle, but I think it would work quite well for veteran storytellers who want to have an easy chronicle set up in Ireland. Mm-hmm. And that's chapter seven. Yeah, and that takes us to the appendix. Yes, indeed. Treasures and timeline. And starts with the Clerican. It sure does. I have such split thoughts on the Clericon in general. Mm. <laughs> I've actually had them work well in games that I've run, like people playing yeah. them. They're generally not... The problem with the write-up is they're always just really bad Irish stereotypes. Yep. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not wild about that. Including one I wasn't familiar with, but I have to assume is one, about how they have, a, they have an extra frailty in this book that's not listed in the frailty section where they cannot take anything but performance above three mm-hmm. as, a, as an ability. I'm like, okay. And I don't remember the insight thing. They can always say the right thing. It's like, okay, the tippling. No, that's bad. Yeah. Their frailty is literally they're alcoholics essentially. Yeah. So the, the birthright twinkling of an eye. That's what I think I like. I, that works. I am very much a fan of it, and I desperately mm-hmm. want a Clericon combat technique, like some kind of martial art that relies on their 
it's like they can teleport without any kind of drawback. And that's huge. Yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'd we, really like to see something more about that. In, in a LARP I ran, we had someone playing a clericon who was very good at um, causing trouble. And then mm-hmm. in, in the Mind's Eye Theater rules, you yelled like fair escape as sort of rules for when you're running away. And most mm. people get stuff. He would, oh, in, in the LARP rules, it was if no player is looking at you, you can use it. Nice. So it was it just, he used it really well. It's just, I miss nice. that character. That was fun. But yep. yeah, he didn't play up the uh, Irish stereotypes nearly as much. And that was part of the good thing. Yeah. There's also a note in here, which they mentioned Cluricon born into black families. And there's, I believe, a white issue elsewhere in the book. And it really, I guess, disappoints me is the verb I want, that they keep kind of tilting at these attempts to to walk back, you know, the, the racist veneer on some of these things, but then they just don't really spell it out enough. And it just doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't do enough to counteract that vibe. So I like, yeah. I mean, that's, that's great that you're saying, yes, this, this kith, even though it comes from very traditional Irish myth, we are acknowledging the multiculturalism and diversity that Ireland has gained in the century mm-hmm. since, but it's just like this passing mention. And I'm, it also says that earlier in, in previous chapter that some issue are Irish, like yeah. from I, and you have the very, yeah. you have the long Irish traveler tradition. Yeah. So like, it makes sense. And I, I just wish I knew more about what their intentions were with, you know, the relationship between race and kiss, because it, it seems like a lot of the authors might be at cross purposes. And I think C20 has cleaned a lot of that up, which is good, but it's a shame because people point to Changeling as this example of like culture done poorly. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. I think that's, well, I, I think C20 is also, uh, except for the Clericon, but uh, <laughs> I think C20 did a much better job of that too. Like it, you can't just point at Changeling you have to point at World of Darkness when this book came out. It's true. Yeah. And at least with Clericon, they actually, they replaced the alcoholism with hoarding as a frailty, right? Mm-hmm. So, But they also replaced insight with like, always know the right thing to say to piss somebody off. And I'm like, Ugh. Yeah, this one's sort of the opposite of that in this book. But... Yeah, exactly. Anyway. So the Clericon. A brief note. The next piece of the episode contains specific information about the mortalized treasures, their mechanics, and their metaplot purpose. So if you are currently in a game involving the treasures, or otherwise don't want their true nature spoiled, please skip ahead exactly three minutes from this point. And then we get treasures, the actual immortal eyes, with mechanics and everything. I forget if we mentioned the backstory of the immortal eyes when we talked about the previous books. But for context, the immortal eyes are actually the eyes from the two statues of petrified she-lords who stood in front of the Silver's Gate at the in the last moments of the Shattering, preventing people from going through because like neither one would allow the other to pass before the other or something. And so Marilla, the Selkie Queen, cursed them because her people couldn't get to safety and turned them to stone. And their eyes became these gemstones that have magic powers. So they are the overall MacGuffins of the the quest that runs through the trilogy. We have the Keystone, which was an emerald bequeathed to the Knockers, which can open anything, including people's fey nature, so it can trigger Chrysalis. 
There's the Waystone, which is a sapphire held by the Clericon, which can lead one anywhere that one is trying to go. It's kind of like the compass from Pirates of the Caribbean, I guess. Yep. Then the Change Stone, which is a ruby entrusted to the satyrs that basically gives you Primal 5 and lots of Soothsay, and can also restore glamour that's lost by Cold Iron, lost from Cold Iron. And the Shadow Stone, which is a black opal given to the Menehune, that absorbs banality, gives you stealth and subterfuge, and can create illusions, but also pushes you into being unseely. I'm trying to understand how the res- what exactly the absorbs banality does by reading it. I think it just it neutralizes. So if you're going yeah. to if you're going to get banality, the stone will. Well, it says absorb. in effect, doubling the glamour of the user while reducing her banality rating accordingly. All right. Well, now I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure what that part means. I would I would read it as if you have like, well, if you have Glamour 6, you can soak up six points of banality using the stone before you actually have to take any on yourself. I don't know how quickly it yeah. seeps away. I from thought it meant it like lowers your banality rating by your Glamour, which is, yeah. Well, but they also amplify each other's effects when they're in proximity and yep. they ramp up uh, the user's Glamour the stones themselves don't really run out of glamour and they can be used as a shield against banality. Their purpose is to find Silver's Gate using the Waystone, open it using the Keystone, cleanse the holders of banality using the Shadow Stone, and give them suitable forms to walk into Arcadia using the Change Stone. So that's, you know. Yep. That's cool. I really like them. Besides that one confusion of what they do, but in general, yeah. I think they're really neat treasures. And then there's a few other ones that don't really have much. Um, I mean, they're from yeah. Irish myth, so they're important, but they don't really go. Yeah, into they it. just mention they exist. They don't say anything yeah. about them, really. And then finally, a timeline of the novel, basically, which is much less detailed than the one we got in Shadows on the Hill, where it gave you like every single paragraph from mm-hmm. the novel, what happens. So, But it takes you up to January 7th, 1996, which makes me believe this was published in 1996. I think it's December 96 is the publication date that I've seen listed. Mm-hmm. But yeah. And that's it. That's the content of the book. And then we have some interesting ads at the end. Yes. So ad for the Court of All Kings novel. An ad reminding us that we're no longer using cantrip cards. <laughs> I thought, yeah, I thought it was like a preview to the, I was like, is this the player's guides coming out soon? It doesn't actually say what it's advertising. Oh, it does. Change the player, guys. Never mind. But yeah, the big thing is you're, we're not playing with a full deck. And... Yeah. And then on the next page, cards. Yeah. Arcadia, the wild hunt. And the ad also says the hunt begins July 1996. So I think they just recycled that without changing it. Yeah. Then five years is a long time in the dark. World of Darkness, second edition, available fall 1996. Yep. Which, World of Darkness, second edition, not... Vampire Second Edition, or, or maybe Vampire Second Edition already came out. Maybe this is oh yeah, World? yeah. No, no, this is this is the supplement World of Darkness, oh. which is just like a big setting book. Okay, I misunderstood. Okay, I have it somewhere, and, or my sibling has it somewhere. And then a teaser trailer for Trinity. Yeah, or what became Trinity? I'm actually because it was it was Aeon before it was Trinity. Mm-hmm. But wasn't it also, wasn't it something else even before it was released? They had a different name for it. 
Uh, yeah. Well, Aeon. Well, Aeon was the name that they had to change it from because of Aeon Flux. Right. I just think I think before it was released, there was another name that was in use, but mm-hmm. I, I might be misremembering. Mm-hmm. Shout out to the makers of the OP cast getting your arms around the Trinity Continuum, because I believe they've probably talked about the history of the game at some point. Mm-hmm. So maybe I'll go back and listen to those. Anyway. But that's the book. Yeah. Overall thoughts? Yeah, I like it. Not all of it, but I like it. There's a lot of useful like not a neat tidbits and stuff for a basically setting book for Ireland written in the night in the nineties. I think it's yeah. pretty useful today, even potentially there, there, Yeah. Again, there's definitely, you'd have to pick and choose, but yeah. How about you? I think one of the most useful things about it is that if you do want to run a game in Ireland, but you can't be bothered to like go and dig into the deep, myth and lore behind all of these little you know landmarks and places and stuff it does give you like a nice little encyclopedia of of a lot of those like why is giant's causeway important why is donangus important mm-hmm. uh, so that that can be helpful yeah if you start it if you start from there too and then do your own research yeah 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 and i think it does a good job of giving more depth to the kind of history and mythology of ireland and mm-hmm. I wouldn't say it counters fully the dismissal of Changeling as being Celtocentric, but it gives it a lot more richness and makes Celtic culture a lot more interesting. Because I think mm-hmm. when people say, oh, it's too it's too Celtocentric, that's because the surface level of Irish myth is very overdone and hackneyed and white and everything. Mm-hmm. But when you actually dig down into it, it is very complex and interesting. It's kind of like... I think the the reductive approach that people often have to the lore, it's not the fault of the lore itself. The lore has incredible complexity and interestingness. At the same time, so does every other mythos in the world. So yep. it shouldn't be privileged at the expense of the others. Well, I also find, yeah, with with the Irish mythology, it's not the only lore like this, but it's... Mm-hmm. You know, it has that whole, we had to write it as if it was an actual, like, history that would be compatible with Christianity kind of thing going on. Yeah. Um, and I think one thing I like about Changeling is it strips that back again. In a yeah. Lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. I suspect it's the kind of thing that the game Scion might kind of take one step further. I mean, I haven't played it, but that's my sense, is it kind of follows that same line of thinking. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Off to look into it. Well, I find yeah, changeling even because of the whole. Mm, I don't know. I'll, I can. I have. I'm still learning about Scion, and I'm still like unsure with it in a lot of ways. I want to play it. Yeah, I could tell you. I need to read the book before I tr- try to walk someone through character creation. It is same. Very far from World of Darkness at this point. It's not like even trying to do Exalted. It's it's oh. quite far. So you will just be hit with so many terms you don't understand. Mm-hmm. And any similarity to the world of darkness will hinder you at that point because you'll make the wrong assumptions. Oh dear. Well, it's on my list. So yeah. The other thing with this book, it does tie up a lot of the threads of Metaplot from first edition, I think, because I mean, not the High King David stuff. I would even say that first edition Metaplot really didn't have much to do with David. 
I mean, he he and the other nobles are just kind of there, and they don't really become metaplot until second edition with his disappearance. First edition is much more centered around the immortalized chronicle, and then like Anton Stark and his band of Mary Dantain. So this kind of it's not the final word in that side of things, but it brings together and wraps up a lot of that from a metaplot perspective. But ultimately, it's most useful as just a setting book for sure. Maybe also as some kind of explanatory supplement about how the Cathanes see their own history, or at least the Concordian ones and the white European ones. Something. Mm-hmm. Yep. Anyway, that's the book. Yeah. So that's this is uh, Changeling the Podcast. You can find us at changelingthepodcast.com. Uh, we have a hopping Discord with lots of neat discussion if you want to join it. The link to it's at changelingthepodcast.com. You can find it from there. We have a Patreon. Where's our Patreon, Puka? Patreon.com slash changelingthepodcast. Yeah. Follow us on Twitter at... Follow us on Twitter at changelingcast. And there's a Facebook group as well. Yes, there's a Facebook group, Changeling the Podcast. And then you can email us at... Changelingthepodcast at gmail.com. There we go, yes. Should we stop here? Yeah. The recording ended quite abruptly on this episode, so I'll take the opportunity to say, until next time, and keep on dreaming. But also, I'd like to mention that we appreciate and value the support of our patrons, to whom we'd like to give a particular shout-out. Derek, Razgabuz, Santachigger, Seja, and Terry Robinson. If you'd also like to help support the show and get more Changeling the Dreaming content, please check out our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash changelingthepodcast. Cheers and thanks.